Hi, I'm Josh Hamilton. And I'm Joe Skinner. And this is the American Masters Podcast, where we have conversations with the people who change us. Today, we talk to theoretical physicist and science communicator, Dr. Michio Kaku. Science is a process of self-discovery. You have to have that epiphany, that one moment where you say to yourself, oh my God, there's a whole universe out there. Find that moment. Get a telescope, get a microscope, go to the planetarium. Have that experience that'll then propel you to explore the universe itself. Michio Kaku might be best known for helping co-found the string field theory. The next step in Albert Einstein's quest to understand the forces of the natural world. By exploring these ideas, Dr. Kaku believes we can arrive at a theory of everything a single theory that can explain the physics of the entire universe. Who better to talk to in a season about origin stories? In Dr. Kaku's line of work, he's trying to describe the origin story for everything. Shortly after receiving his PhD in 1972 at UC Berkeley, Dr. Kaku wrote his first papers on string field theory. He would go on to become a major science communicator, writing several best-selling popular science books. Dr. Kaku was able to take some time away from teaching to talk to me about his own origin story, an early science experiment in his parents' garage that set him on this cosmic path. So one day I asked my mother permission to build an atom smasher. I went to my mom and I said, Mom, can I have permission to build a 2.3 million electron volt betatron particle accelerator in the garage? And she kind of stared at me and said, sure, why not? And don't forget to take out the garbage. <laughs> well, luckily, Westinghouse and Varian Associates were not too far away. I got 400 pounds of transformer steel. From Varian Associates, I got 22 miles of copper wire. And we wound the magnet for the atom smasher on the high school football field. I put the wire on the goalpost and gave it to my mother. She then took the, the wire, ran to the 50-yard line, gave it to my father. He took it at the 50-yard line and ran to the other goalpost. And we wound 22 miles of copper wire on the high school football field over Christmas. Well, it consumed six kilowatts of power, but it was finally finished. So I closed my eyes, I turned on my atom smasher, and I heard this huge crackling sound as six kilowatts of power came surging through the capacitor bank. And then I heard this pop, pop, pop sound as I blew out all the circuit breakers in the house. And every time I plugged it in, yes, I'd blow out all the fuses and circuit breakers. And my poor mom, she'd come home from a hard day's work, see the lights flicker and die. And she would say, where's the fuse box? And then she must have said to herself, why couldn't I have a son who plays baseball or basketball? And for God's sake, why can't he find a nice Japanese girlfriend? Why does he have to build these gigantic machines in the garage? Well, these machines helped to get me a scholarship, a scholarship to Harvard where I could continue my fascination with the world of physics. Wow, that's incredible. Where were you born and where did you grow up? Well, I was born in San Jose before it became the, the, the heartland of Silicon Valley. It was all apple orchards and alfalfa fields. And I once asked my mother, well, why did we wind up in this hillbilly area called San Jose, California? Well, it turns out that during the war, my parents were citizens of the United States in California, but their, their parents had come from Japan. And so they were incarcerated in the relocation camps from 1942 to 1946. 
Well, after the war, they had no money because their assets were confiscated by the government. So they settled in Palo Alto, where my father was born. And uh, that's where I got my start. So were your parents involved in science, or were you the first to really step into that field? I was the first to uh, go to high school in my family and first to graduate from college. And um, when I talked to my parents about being incarcerated for four years, their attitude was, well, look, you, you pick up. You pick up the pieces you get along with life, you don't, you don't get obsessed about it, and you try to make sure it doesn't happen again. What first made you fascinated by science when you were a young boy? When I was eight years old, something happened which changed my entire life. I still remember one day reading the newspaper and everyone was talking about the fact that a great scientist had just died, and they published a picture of his desk on the front page of the newspaper. It was a very simple desk with a book that was opened. And the caption said, this is the unfinished manuscript of the greatest scientist of our time. And I thought to myself, well, why couldn't he finish it? So I went to the library over the years and I found out the man's name. His name was Albert Einstein. And that book that he couldn't finish was to be the unified field theory, the theory that would unite gravity with the electromagnetic force like light and possibly even the nuclear force that makes the stars shine. A simple theory, perhaps no more than one inch long, and he failed. But I said to myself, wow, this is greater than any murder mystery. This is more exciting than any adventure story. I'm going to be part of this great search for the theory of everything. And believe it or not, that's what I do for a living. That's my day job. I'm paid by the city of New York to help complete Einstein's dream of a theory of everything. You've talked before about how string theory is one of the is a, is a bit messier in terms of it's a bit harder to simplify it and and put it into some kind of very easy to understand illustration. Well, let me try. You know, the Greeks 2000 years ago had two theories of everything. Democrates had the theory of atoms that cannot be cut. In fact, that's what atom means, cannot be cut, atom. And so he thought that everything was composed of tiny particles called atoms, but that theory never went anywhere for the next 2,000 years. But Pythagoras had another theory. Pythagoras worked out the theory of music. There were lyre strings 2,000 years ago that when you plucked, you can see the vibrations in terms of resonances. And so he thought that, by golly, music, music could be the paradigm that explains all nature. But that never went anywhere for the next 2,000 years. But now we do have a theory of atoms. In fact, what makes up the atoms are protons and neutrons. And what makes up those are quarks, all 36 of them, plus a whole slew of Higgs bosons and photons and W particles and so on and so forth. And so we physicists now believe that these point particles are not fundamental at all. That if I had a super microscope, I could see that the electron is actually a rubber band, a rubber band that vibrates. And if you keep on twanging this rubber band, it turns into all the particles that we have discovered with our atom smashers. And so what is physics? Physics, therefore, is the harmonies you can make on these strings 
And what are these subatomic particles? Musical notes. What is the universe? The universe is a symphony of strings, cosmic music resonating through hyperspace. Wow. So, so it really does go back to music in a certain way. Yes, it does. And so the universe apparently is simpler than we thought, that there really could be a so-called God equation that set the whole universe into motion. A single theory that Einstein was looking for for the last 30 years of his life that would explain everything, including creation itself, and then, of course, the evolution of the universe, stars, galaxies, and even people. Looking at the origin of the universe really expands one's sense of the scale of time. In your recent book, The Future of Humanity, Terraforming Mars, Interstellar Travel, Immortality, and Our Destiny Beyond Earth, uh, you look at the distant future. W what do you see in the distant future? Well, we physicists look in outer space for guidance. And how do we look for the future of civilization? We look at energy. We're physicists, we like to measure things, and we categorize advanced civilizations by energy into three types, type one, two, and three. A type one civilization is planetary. They control the weather, for example. They can change the course of rivers and, and oceans, and they can consume all the energy that falls onto their planet from the sun, a planetary civilization. Then there is type two, which is stellar, they actually play with stars. They can consume all the energy coming from their mother star, and they are immortal. Nothing known to science can destroy a type two civilization. And then there's type three, which is galactic. They roam the galactic space lanes, and they consume the energy of not just one star, but billions of stars in their galaxy. Now, to put this into perspective, Star Trek, and the Federation of Planets would more or less be a type two civilization. They've only explored a certain tiny quadrant of the Milky Way galaxy, and so a type two civilization would be like Star Trek. The Star Wars saga would be like a type three, a galactic civilization that spans not just one solar system, but the entire galaxy itself. So what are we on this scale? Are we type one that play with planets? Are we type two that play with stars? Are we type three that plays with galaxies? No, we're type zero. We get our energy from dead plants, oil and coal. But we are about 100 years from becoming type one. In fact, that is our destiny. Our destiny, unless we destroy ourselves, as a civilization is to become type one. Like, for example, what is the internet? The internet is the first type one technology that fell into our century. So we are privileged to be alive to see the first type one technology falling into our laps in this century when we're still type zero and we still have all the savagery of our rise from the swamp just a few hundred years ago. And we're beginning to see the beginning of a type one language as well. On the internet, the two most popular languages are English and Mandarin Chinese. And some people would argue that we're even beginning to see the beginning of a type one culture. Uh, music, uh, rock and roll, rap, uh, these are the universal uh, musical tastes of young people throughout the entire planet. 
So the beginning of a type 1 music is beginning to arise right before our eyes. So do you think there's a certain inevitability to us arriving at this type 1 planet, or do you think something like climate change or something else could stop us from our goals? Well, Carl Sagan actually asked this question. Uh, he redid the scale more precisely and said that we are actually a 0.7 civilization. So we're very close to being 1.0. We're not there yet, but we're about 0.7, he calculated. But he was careful to say self-inflicted injuries could derail this whole process. In fact, he speculated that maybe that's one reason why they don't visit us. I mean, if the galaxy has 100 billion stars, and if on average every single star in our galaxy has a planet going around it, and one in five perhaps have Earth-like planets going around it, that means there are billions, billions of Earth-like planets right in our own backyard. And then the question is, well, why don't they land on the White House lawn and advertise their presence and give us the benefit of their technology? Well, one possibility is maybe we will blow ourselves up before that happens. We have all this vast technology that can destroy entire civilizations. We have not just nuclear proliferation to worry about, but we have global warming, and we have the spread of uh, potentially bioengineered germs uh, that could also destroy civilization. So there are self-inflicted problems that we also face as we head toward the creation of a type 1 civilization. I think science can stir the imagination in, in much the same way that art can. Why do you think it's so important to communicate science to a broad audience? Uh, well, I ask my students, where does wealth and prosperity come from? Now, if you talk to a lawyer, they might say that it comes from lawsuits. Well, yeah, but that's a zero-sum game. You sue Peter to pay Paul. There's no net increase in wealth. If you talk to a politician, where does wealth come from? They say it comes from taxes. But if you tax Peter to pay Paul, it's again a zero-sum game. I say wealth and prosperity come from science and technology. But science and technology comes in waves. It doesn't, it's not uniform at all. The first wave was in the 1800s when we physicists worked out what is called thermodynamics. We perfected the steam engine. And that gave us the locomotive. It gave us machines. And the machine age erupted, giving us the Industrial Revolution, which lifted millions of people out of grinding poverty and gave them a decent living. And then 80 years after that, around the turn of the last century, we physicists worked out electricity and magnetism. And they give us the electric revolution, all of a sudden, our cities were lit up. All of a sudden, we had television, radio, we had appliances. That was the electric age. Eighty years after that, we physicists worked out the quantum theory, the theory of atoms, and that gave us the transistor. The transistor, in turn, is the backbone of the computer, and that gave us the information age of today. And now we're faced with the fourth wave, the fourth wave of wealth generation, and that is, I think, physics at the atomic level, meaning artificial intelligence, nanotechnology, and biotechnology. They, I think, will be the drivers of wealth, prosperity, and progress into the next century. 
So why aren't we spending more money on these wealth generators? Well, unfortunately, society tends to be rather nearsighted because politicians think that everything comes from taxes, and sometimes they kill the goose that lay the golden egg. Uh, for example, if you take a look at the 1800s, um, that's where modern science originated in England. If you take a look at the great work of the British scientists of the 1800s, uh, Lord Kelvin, Rutherford, Maxwell, Faraday, all the great scientists of the 1800s were British. But unfortunately, the British Empire began to age and stagnate, and, and science didn't get much support in the 20th century. But Germany then began to rise, and the Nazis, of course, lavished tremendous amounts of funds on people like von Braun to perfect the rocket and to perfect all these weapons of destruction. And so you see that technology is a double-edged sword. It could be used to destroy as well. While in America, during the early 20th century, science was neglected. In fact, who invented the liquid-fueled rocket that is the backbone of the space program? It was Robert Goddard, and what was his reception in the United States? He was laughed at. The New York Times ridiculed him, called him basically a fraud, and said that all his work was worthless and that we would never use rockets to go to the moon. Well, when we finally went to the moon long after Goddard had died, the New York Times published an apology. Oops! Sorry about that. Yes, rockets can move in the vacuum of space, and rockets can indeed go to the moon. But there was one country that took the work of Robert Goddard seriously, and that country was Nazi Germany. And they used the technology perfected in the United States to rain destruction on London during World War II. And so, in other words, the lesson here is very simple. You can ignore science all you want except other countries will grab the mantle of science and leave you in the dust. So what do you think is the most important thing for young scientists of the future to get involved in? Well, I think today we realize that with the coming of artificial intelligence and the coming of biotechnology, nanotechnology, the job market is also going to change. For example, if you take a look at Downtown Abbey, and you look at the decline of the great British mansions of the 1800s and early 1900s, the series actually hints, hints at the reason for the decline of the great mansions. And you see, during the Middle Ages, if you were a peasant, you were basically working on the fields, or if you were lucky, you worked as a servant in the master's house. But then something happened. We physicists worked out the laws of thermodynamics, perfected the steam engine, created the locomotive, and created the Industrial Revolution. All of a sudden, peasants could make more money working in the factories, making products, or being uh, using the locomotive to find jobs elsewhere. And all of a sudden, labor costs went up. Workers did not want to work in Downtown Abbey anymore, and, and also because of taxation, uh, the mansions of the 1800s and 1700s began to decline. So there are winners and losers. That's what I'm getting at. The winners of the Industrial Revolution were, was the industrial working class. They were the winners. The losers were those that depended upon serfs 
and depended upon peasants to maintain these incredibly expensive、um, mansions like Downtown Abbey. So they're winners and losers. The winners of the future will be those that understand that technology is the driver of progress. It's our ability as a nation. To fund science, encourage science, create young scientists to keep this engine of prosperity alive. If you could go back in time using science and talk to your ten-year-old self, is there is there something that you would say? Gee, I sometimes ask that question because I see a lot of ten-year-old kids now, and I say to myself, what should I tell them that I had to learn the hard way? That science is a process of self-discovery. That you have to have that epiphany, that one moment where you say to yourself, "Oh my God, there's a whole universe out there." You don't have to be rich. You don't have to have a famous father or money in your in your family tree. No, it, the playing field is level. Many people read the history of Einstein. Einstein came from a very modest family. His father went bankrupt several times, in fact, and、um, he's a self-made person. But he had that epiphany. In fact, when Einstein was 16 years old, he had a vision which changed human history. When he was 16 years old, he imagined racing next to a light beam, and he asked himself the key question, the question that unlocked many of the secrets of the universe, and that is, can you outrace a light beam? When he finally answered that question ten years later, when he was 26 years old, he realized, no, you cannot outrace a light beam. The speed of light is the ultimate velocity in the universe. It is a constant velocity, and space and time must be distorted to maintain that. And so, a 16-year-old boy comes up with a picture which changes human history. So I tell young people, find that moment. Get a telescope. Get a microscope. Go to the planetarium. Get an astronomy book. Have that experience that'll then propel you to explore the universe itself. And now I'm older, and I talk to other scientists, and they say that yes, they too, they too remember that moment when they were a child, and it's like a well. You constantly draw water from that well. When you're old, you're tired. The experiments are not going right. The equations are not going right. You remember, you remember being that ten-year-old kid, getting that inspiration. That's the well that even older scientists draw from, even as they get older. Dr. Kaku, thank you so much for coming in. My pleasure. The American Masters podcast was created by Michael Cantor and is produced by Joe Skinner and co-produced by Josh Hamilton, with sound engineering by Josh Broom, Evan Joseph, and John Berman. For American Masters, we thank series producer Julie Sachs and associate producer Christiana Lombardo. Our theme music is by Infinity Shred. Thanks for listening, and please don't forget to give us a rating or a review and tell a friend about us or share a favorite episode. See you in a couple weeks.